My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Vicky about having multiple autoimmune conditions. According to the National Library of Medicine, about 25% of patients with autoimmune diseases have a tendency to develop additional autoimmune diseases. Autoimmune diseases are characterized by an abnormal immune response in which the body attacks itself. Researchers have identified many autoimmune diseases, over 80, and some sources claim over 100. Vicky's journey with autoimmune disease started in high school when she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. A few years later, she was diagnosed with Sjogren's syndrome, which affects the mucous membranes and moisture-secreting glands of your eyes and mouth, causing them to be very dry. She also has several diagnoses that are believed to be autoimmune-related, including Raynaud's phenomenon, interstitial cystitis, and most recently, gastroparesis. Vicky does a great job of describing these diseases especially interstitial cystitis, which I had never heard of before. Uh, and there's a lot to cover in this episode because we're talking about a lot of diseases, on top of which Vicky also experienced intracranial hypertension. But the one disease that we barely touched on in this episode is Raynaud's phenomenon. Vicky will mention having it a couple of times, but we never really talk about what it is. So I wanted to give you that definition at the top of the show. So according to the mayoclinic.org, Raynaud's disease, also called Raynaud's phenomenon or Raynaud's syndrome, causes some areas of the body, such as fingers and toes, to feel numb and cold in response to cold temperatures or stress. In Raynaud's disease, smaller arteries that supply blood to the skin narrow. This limits blood flow to affected areas, which is called vasospasm. And as I mentioned, I'll let Vicky describe the rest of these diseases to you during the interview. As you can imagine, having this many diagnoses can feel extremely overwhelming. And Vicky says after the time she got her fourth diagnosis, she just didn't want to deal with it anymore. She wanted to stop going to doctors, stop getting bad news from doctors, and stop having to manage her health constantly. But chronic illness doesn't give you that choice. If you ignore what you're living with, if you don't try to manage it, it will just get worse. And thankfully, Vicky is at a place right now where things are relatively stable. Her rheumatoid arthritis medication is working. And once that got under control, her Sjogren's and Raynaud's seem to back off a little bit. She goes into a urogynecologist every other week for bladder treatments and medications for her interstitial cystitis. And she's finally making progress with her gastroparesis by taking IV fluids and IV nausea meds at home. So the message here is, you know, dealing with this many diseases is not fun. Nobody would choose this. Nobody wants this. But it is possible. You can learn to manage these things and you can make progress. Talking to Vicky was super, super fun. A lot of you might know her from TikTok or Instagram. Her handle is chronically.vicky, where she makes a lot of super fun content around chronic illness and advocacy. She's been dealing with the medical system for a long time and has a lot of great insight into how to navigate it. She's also got a fascinating story that I'm honored to share here on the podcast. So we've got a great episode today for you with Vicky, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. I did want to warn you that you will hear a little bit of dog barking in this episode. Vicky has three dogs. I know sometimes if you're listening to a podcast and you hear a dog bark, you won't know if it's real, <laughs> if it's on the podcast, if it's in your house. So I just wanted to let you know ahead of time. If you are enjoying this podcast, a great way to support it is by signing up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. Use our link to sign up, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, and you will be supporting this show as you sign up. If you are then selected to participate in a research study or survey, you can earn an average of $100 per hour to answer questions about your diagnosis. You can sign up with any diagnosis at all. It does not need to be a rare disease. And you can also sign up with multiple diagnoses. So if you're someone like Vicky, you can put in all of your diseases, raising the likelihood that you will earn money to participate. That link is rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can find that link in the description of this podcast. I did want to thank the new person who signed up uh, just before last week's podcast episode came out. Every time someone signs up, I receive a $10 Amazon gift card, which is extremely useful because that is where I get a lot of the supplements that I'm taking to manage my own chronic illness. So thank you so much to the person who just signed up. Another great way to support this show is by joining our growing community of listeners on Patreon, supporting this show with monthly financial contributions. There are three tiers of support starting at just $2 per month, and everyone who signs up gains access to our monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. We talk about what's going on in our lives, updates on our health, and of course, talk about the TV and movies we are watching. 
Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers who are supporting this podcast at the top tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. You can stay tuned at the very end of every podcast episode for the rest of our Patreon thank yous. And if you are interested in signing up to support this show, we would love your support. Head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. That link is also in the show notes of this episode. Don't forget to leave us a positive rating and review on the platform on which you listen to this podcast. We are up to 32 ratings on Apple Podcasts with a rating of 4.9 out of 5. And on Spotify, we have 20 five-star ratings. We only have five-star ratings on Spotify, which is so incredible. Plus, we've been on Spotify for way less time than on Apple Podcasts. And the fact that we are really catching up with the ratings on Spotify is something that makes me very grateful. This is a great way to help new listeners find the show. So if you have not yet left a positive rating or a review, I always really, really appreciate it. I'm keeping an eye on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Podcast Republic, where I listen to podcasts. But if you've left us a positive review on another platform, take a screenshot and email it to me at majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to share it on the next episode of the podcast. I'll remind you, as always, that my guests and I are not medical professionals. So please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our awesome episode with Vicky about living with multiple autoimmune diseases. Vicky, welcome to the podcast. Hello, nice to see you and nice to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat today. I know you from TikTok and you've yes. done this series of videos uh, where you say, you know, top five reasons that somebody would lie about their chronic illness or something along those lines. And yep. then you just sit there silently. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You've yeah. done a few of those that I've seen. Well, yeah, because, I mean, from social media alone, you can never tell what somebody's going through. I mean, social media is a filter that people filter their life out through. And um, you never truly know what's going on. Yeah. Well, I love it because at, at first it made me angry when I saw it. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this person is about to accuse chronically ill people of making things up <laughs> and i was i already was following you at that point <laughs> yeah yeah and i was like who yeah. what what is happening but then you just sat there sound like oh okay i've been trolled and i love it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was like the i had a lot of people they're like you had me you had me for just like five seconds yeah. and then i realized nothing was popping up yeah and I, they were like no not you too <laughs> like yeah. no trust me never yeah. I would never. That's why I loved it so much. And you absolutely yeah. totally had me for a second as well. But, you know, anyone with a chronic illness experiences people assuming that they're faking. And it's rough. You know, it's rough yeah. out there. It's yeah. rough going to talk to a doctor and having them yeah. kind of dismiss you, assume that you're faking, assume that it's no big deal. You know, tell you it's just anxiety without running any tests. We've all been through that. So I think that that's a sore subject for a lot of us. And I feel yes. like... Uh, for people who haven't experienced chronic illness, that whole gotcha moment of like seeing someone stand up out of a wheelchair or something like, oh, that person doesn't yeah. need a wheelchair. When in right. fact, a lot of people who use wheelchairs can stand up and can w even walk yeah. sometimes. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think that's a really important point of advocacy that is not covered enough. And I think that you were doing that in a really, really clever way. Well, thank you. I try to keep things pretty lighthearted and funny and, you know, because we all go through so much serious stuff you know like um dealing with our chronic illnesses dealing with trying to work trying to make you know financial uh, obligations met and mm. then when you when you get on social media to want to wind down a little bit sometimes laugh and relax that's what i i try to do you know while poking fun or having fun with our topics that we all know so intimately well like medical gaslighting yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really excited to hear more about your your story and your, your health journey today. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit. So, Vicki, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, I am a 38-year-old lady. Um, I live with my parents now. I used to have a condo on my own, but, you know, with bad health issues, life got a little too unpredictable. So, I moved back in with them. We have our three wonderful doggos, which often make a uh, pop up on my TikTok. <laughs> it 
because I mean, they're dogs, they're part of life. Um, I love to sew and I love to craft. I like to make things with my hands uh, when I have the opportunity to. Um, often seen in the backdrop of my TikToks is my sewing setup, which I have finally gotten to a point where I absolutely adore it. I have all my machines out ready, my threads, I have all my fabrics and ready stuff ready to go. So when I have a good day, I hit that and I'm just, I'm ready to create. Awesome. <laughs> What's your favorite thing that you've made? Oh, I made a, actually it's a purse I'm using. I made a purse that is in the shape of um, the TARDIS. Oh. And I galaxy fabric for like the windows. So it looked like you're looking outside of it. You can see the galaxy on the outside of it and stuff. Wow. It's a, it's one of my favorite pieces that I've made. Um, and I still use it on and off. I've made it about three years ago and uh, it's still one of my favorite pieces that I've made. That is awesome. You could definitely sell that. <laughs> I know a lot of nerds that would really yeah. like that. Because <laughs> uh, the front side is the TARDIS on the back side. I embroidered all kinds of like um, nerdy stuff, I guess, like a D20. I uh, I have a I heart heart doctor. You know, the doctor has two hearts. Mm. Uh, so then I have a baby Yoda or a Grogu. Some people get really offended when you call them baby Yoda. I don't <laughs> I don't care. I call them at all. Yeah. Um, then they got some supernatural stuff and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas stuff on the back of it. It's just kind of like a, a homogenous piece of some of my favorite things. You awesome. Know? Yeah. Speaking of Grogu, yeah. I see a giant Grogu behind you. Oh, and on your oh, shirt yeah. too. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, that's my adorable. <laughs> I am a I'm a little bit of a fan. Um, <laughs> yeah. Me he's too. a little bit all over the place. Um, between pugs and Grogu and, you know, all things nerdy. I'm just, I'm just a fan, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, me too. I, my favorite thing is Star Trek The Next Generation. And I am just dying to see the first episode of uh, Picard Season 3 with The Next Generation Reunion. It just came out like yesterday. I haven't seen it yet. So, um, oh, how exciting. yeah, I'm very excited. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good talk about that <laughs> oh i know we could talk nerd that was my old podcast we could talk nerd stuff all day but we have we have a very important topic to discuss so uh vicky what is your major pain my major pain and i would say the thing that has started me down this path that i'm on is my rheumatoid arthritis um which has led to me developing multiple other you know autoimmune conditions um and for some people my gastroparesis is related to my autoimmune disease is what my uh, motility specialist said, um, which has kind of led me down this whole other path of my life. I had no idea that I was going to be headed down, you know? Um, but yeah, my major pain has got to be autoimmune disease, man. Mm. It's, it's just a bummer. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard a couple people say that when you have one, there is very likely at least one more that with autoimmune yeah. disease, they, they yes. tend to kind of gang up on you a little bit. They do. Yeah. Um, I have, I have rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's syndrome, Raynaud phenomenon, interstitial cystitis, gastroparesis. That is all kind of like within that autoimmune bubble that they're kind of finding out that like interstitial cystitis. And then mine is GI dis autoimmune GI dysmotility, which causes gastroparesis. Um, cause some people it's damage to the vagus nerve. Some people it's other causes, but mine is just autoimmune. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have never heard of interstitial cystitis. What is that? Yeah. Okay. So it is a bladder condition, which causes, uh, it can cause, uh, I don't have ulcers, but it can cause ulcers on the inside of your bladder. It can cause retention or it can cause hyperactivity. It causes a lot of pain for a lot of people um, and a lot of people equate it to having a UTI all the time. Wow. Um, so you have this, the UTI symptoms constantly. Um, and it is one of those uh, conditions that they're just kind of finding more stuff up about and are finding that it's probably more likely its own autoimmune disease on its own, um, which is really interesting because that can lead to more treatments because if you can find, you know, the etiology of a disorder, then that can lead you to go, okay, well, we know how we treat autoimmune diseases, other autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis and all this other stuff. Um, we can maybe apply those same treatments 
to this and get some people relief, um, which would be really nice because the interstitial cystitis community really needs it. Um, it is one that is not talked about a lot because I just don't think a lot of people know about it. Um, and there's a lot of people that complain about the symptoms and you're like, as a sufferer, you're like, I know what you're going through. I know what this could possibly be, but then doctors are not as caught up on it, you know, which is seeming to be, I feel like the new like plight that people have to go through where we are in our own communities. We're talking to each other. We are knowing what each other are going through. We're like, I know what you have. I know what you're suffering from, but you cannot get doctors on board to even test for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's wild because, you know, but before the internet and before all these communities where we could connect with each other, we were all just yeah. so isolated. Yeah, I'm the same yes. exact age with you. I'm also 38 years old. So I remember these yeah. days very well yeah. where I was sick and I didn't know anyone else who was sick. And I didn't know that what I was going through was common. Uh, yeah. I thought that I was just one person and that doctors yep. would never help me um, because yep. they couldn't figure out what was going on. But it's yeah. so interesting when we all start talking to each other and everyone is going through something similar. And especially with like when you have the same diagnosis, you know, you yeah. mentioned in interstitial cystitis community. So I'm assuming yeah. you're you've found a support yes. group or something like that online where you're talking to each other. And you can all kind of compare notes and say, hey, we are all experiencing this same thing. This is yep. a real thing. And it does yep. this thing to the human body. And it does it regularly. And that is scientific. And that is a fact that I live with. And yet still, it can be hard to get help from doctors about yep. those things. Um, yep. It's really it's really bizarre. It, I, it I, I've been talking about this with someone recently. And I, I my feeling is that if doctors are not taught something in medical school, like if it's a relatively new diagnosis that is maybe getting mm -hmm. more common after they've graduated when they start practicing, then they seem yeah. really reluctant to bring those things into their practice. Yeah. Um, there are obviously exceptions to that, huge exceptions yeah. to that. Um, you know, I've had incredible experiences at University of Washington Medical Center, which is a teaching hospital where and yeah. I, I've heard this from other people as well, that teaching hospitals tend to stay more up to date on the new yeah. discoveries and the changes uh, in the practice in the field. But yeah. it seems like a lot of doctors are unwilling to do that. And it's it's tough. It, it kind of leaves it up to the patients to be our own doctors in a lot of ways and and research yeah. and bring stuff to doctors and try new doctors when those doctors won't listen to us. Right. And um, I, my best experience I have is also at um, my local university of Louisville doctors, which is another teaching hospital. Mm. Um, I've had the best luck. That's where my interstitial cystitis doctor is at. And it's a really highly specialized form of medicine that they have. Um, it's a urogynecology office. So it's a urologist gynecology office, but they're, they are more specialized in, pelvic disorders for people um, because oftentimes um, and this is what my nurse practitioner and doctor that I see there they're like interstitial cystitis does not typically occur on its own there's either it's usually interstitial cystitis and pelvic floor dysfunction which is where you can have muscular issues down there um and you can have other issues and i talk about this on my page so it's not anything that i'm like super embarrassed to talk about but you can have this thing called vulvodynia which is just pain when in your you know vulval area and all of this is so highly stigmatized that a lot of women are just like i don't want to talk about it you know i don't yeah. want I, they ask their one doctor and the doctor's like well just don't think about it because that's what i got told I got told for years and years that they're like, well, you're obviously just paying too much attention to it. It took mm. me over seven years to get a diagnosis. Um, and five of those I was spent bouncing around office, office to office trying to find somebody to talk to about it because nobody, nobody knew. Like I got diagnosed with my rheumatoid arthritis when I was in high school and I graduated in 2004. So that was a little bit pre, you know, internet forum era that was starting but it wasn't like we were using it like we use it today you right, know absolutely not yeah yeah you you may be able to google something but it's basically the same thing they gave you when they diagnosed you oh here's your pamphlet goodbye yeah we, no, we were we were on myspace and aol instant messaging each yeah. other it was the dark yes. ages of the internet yeah. 
<laughs> we only talked to our friends that we knew in school, yeah. you know, or we went into a random chat room and they were, they were just wanting to talk about where do you live? Where do you come from? What do you do there? There, there wasn't really the forum style for at least until I was midway through college. I don't think I remember seeing my first community until then. And then, you know, Facebook, once it got out of being just for colleges, because I think some people forget Facebook was used to be, you had to be a college either graduate or in college to sign up for it. Yeah. You had to Uh, have a a university email address to even qualify to be on Facebook. Yeah. And then they, they changed it obviously, but you know, before that even was a thing. So I really like our community. Um, and in some ways, I don't know if it's helped or hindered the medical community where it's like now that we know more or have access to more information on our own, are they thinking that we're over diagnosing ourselves? Because we're c- coming to find out some of these conditions aren't really that rare. You know, mm-hmm. they're just rarely diagnosed. Um and is it because of access to information, we're able to bring this up and say, hey, this is something that I think that I'm suffering from without them feeling like you're trying to step on their toes, you know, because some some of them are really sensitive um, when you bring up information. Yeah, that's a this is huge. Yeah, this is a really important thing to talk about. I, I have experienced this a lot where if I bring a specific diagnosis to a doctor and say, hey, can you check me for this? then they do feel like I'm stepping on their toes and it can actually really hinder my care. Uh, Whereas Uh if I research the symptoms of that thing and try to get the terminology that, uh, that, that the medical people might use to describe that thing, then I might get more results and just bring up the symptoms, but kind of, you know, I, I talked about this on the show recently, but trying to kind of learn how to describe my own symptoms by reading about Mm -hmm. diagnoses Because oftentimes we have no idea how to describe what's going on in our bodies. And, you know, I have this like weird feeling in my right arm. It's like, well, what is it? You know, and I start doing some research and it's like, oh, well, maybe it's a tingling, burning sensation. You know, maybe that's what I could call it. Um, And that can lead doctors in a certain direction. Because oftentimes doctors have never experienced any of the things that they're trying to diagnose. You know, it's not like you can go into VR and feel what it feels like to have multiple sclerosis. You know, that would be... Um, incredibly useful for the diagnostics field for doctors to know what these things feel like. But we're just kind of left having to use imperfect language to describe it. And God forbid that you have any type of, you know, like autism or any type of communication style disorder where you can't artfully articulate what you're trying to tell somebody or you describe things differently than what they perceive you should be describing it. Some of these feelings are subjective, you know, and they, mm. they don't believe how subjective it is. They're, you're just like, well, sometimes it's like this when they're like, well, if it's not like that all the time, then it can't be this one condition. Right. When really the, what they're just like, they read the textbook description and the textbook description doesn't fit every person with the disease. Um, you know, like there's some people with interstitial cystitis, like I'd said earlier, that have ulcers. Now, that used to be the textbook definition for it up until probably about five or so years ago when they were like, well, you don't have IC unless you have um, unless you have these hunter's ulcers. Well, really, they're coming to find out there's like four or five different subcategories of interstitial cystitis, and a large portion of those categories don't have ulcers. Hmm. But yet they still have all the other symptoms. And it's like, so some doctors get hung up, I think, on, well, that is not the textbook description. So I can't diagnose you with that because it's not 100% perfect to the textbook. When we all know not every person's going to have every symptom and even most medical diaries will tell them. Doc, some patients may only experience some of these symptoms, right. not all of these. Oh, yeah, yeah. The textbook will, will tell you, like, this is the exception. Uh, but then, because it's rare, doctors are often not willing to consider it. So, yep. but that's why we have to be our own advocates. Yeah, you go in and say, "Hey, I'm having these symptoms," um, yeah. and they're like, "Okay, well, I don't think that's really serious." But then you have to go back and say it like three or four more times before they will actually yeah. test for it. Sometimes, like you yes. have to really prove that this thing is hindering your life or causing you pain. They won't take your word for it the first time, uh, no. but. I think that a lot of people don't know that that will happen. I know I yes. didn't know that. 
And I just yes. assume that, you know, when I go in and say, hey, I'm having these weird neurological problems, that they take me seriously and do something, yeah. but they won't, yeah. you know, nope. <laughs> like sometimes they will, obviously all, all of this is, there's exceptions to everything, yeah. but oftentimes what would happen for me is they do a few tests, see nothing wrong and just say, okay, well, this is nothing. Um, instead of like really taking you seriously and trying to dig into it, it seems like, you know, for me, I had to complain about it to dozens of doctors over almost a dozen years before I really yep. got movement on it. Um, yeah. And if I had known at the beginning that you kind of have to, be dogged about these things and just like yeah. be you know constantly pushing your pushing back against doctors yeah. because we're, we're taught to not do that societally but you kind of have to if yeah. you want to get results sometimes correct yeah and i've i've talked about that a little bit on my page uh too about being the squeaky wheel the squeaky wheel gets the oil has mm. always been a phrase that i've heard growing up from my mom um who also experienced a lot of like weird um and her ear issues after a car accident come to find out she had to have some kind of crystal realignment thing, which was kind of rare to have done then, but now it's a lot more commonplace. She had to travel to a specialty clinic in Tennessee to have it done then, but now the ear clinic here in local in town would do it. Um, and it's just like, she, she was experiencing debilitating vertigo and she's like, I can't even drive. You know, she's like, I can't work. She's like this, something has to be done. I learned from her, you know, because the end, like when I was in high school, my hands started to swell up really bad. Um, and I was having a really difficult time writing with pencils and pens. It was really fun, you know, articles of things to write with. And what you're doing all day long in high school, it's just so frustrating when you can't put your hands to a pen and write your notes. Um, and so she took me to my regular doctor. My regular doctor referred me to the hand clinic. The hand clinic did three or four different lines of treatment. And then finally they were like, let's, you know, check an autoimmune panel. And uh, then they were like, you need a rheumatologist. And then they sent me off to the rheumatologist. Mm. So thankfully I like, I say the word thankfully, like thankfully I was diagnosed, but thankfully I was diagnosed relatively quickly with my yeah. rheumatoid arthritis. Um, wow. Yeah. Cause there's some people when my body malfunctions, it, it malfunctions in a way that it does show up on tests. And there are a lot of people who are not, I don't want to say fortunate enough, but in the, in terms of when you're sick and you need answers and you want answers, you are unfortunate to not have tests that show that you are ill. Um, so I'm fortunate in that regard where my tests do show that I had seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. I had really high inflammation levels. They got me right to the rheumatologist. They put me on proper medication and brought my inflammation levels down. And over the past about six years, we've we've jiggled with my medication some. And I would say that my rheumatoid now, it's not in remission, but it is very low activity. And I hardly think much about it anymore, which I think is a blessing. So I will always take that any day of the week, when it, especially when it comes to pain, you know. Yeah, wow. And so you were diagnosed very young. And relatively yeah. quickly yeah. in high school. I mean, how do you know how rare it is to develop rheumatoid arthritis in high school? Um, I do not know, but I know that, uh, you know, JRA, which is ju juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which was technically, so I was right around 16, 17 years old. I'm still technically in the juvenile category. Um, there's, they sometimes label you as like idiopathic inflammatory autoimmune arthritis uh, which i was labeled that for like a year or so before they gave me the like the full-on ra diagnosis um because he was like i think you have ra he says but i don't want to slap a title on you if it tends to develop into something else so i was like all right cool whatever you know because this is before the internet i didn't know <laughs> i didn't know you know um uh, but all of it was the treatment was the same he's like yeah. the treatments he's like but so I just pretty much count it RA from day one because we know exactly what it was. You know, the, I can't remember. They call it the RF factor, I believe. It has been a very long time since I've had to deal with like the diagnosing part of rheumatoid arthritis. I really wish when I was younger, I had taken better notes mm. on like my symptoms and um, like what steps we exactly took leading up to it. Because that was 20-ish years ago now. And 
you know, when you're a teenager, you just kind of don't pay much mind to things. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, okay, well, I'll go do this and I'll go do that. Uh, I really, I really feel like the time felt like it was really fast, but I mean, it could have been over a year or two, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we did a really great episode about rheumatoid arthritis with uh, Cheryl, uh, Cheryl Crow, who's a great RA advocate. Um, yes. Yeah. And I think she was also quite young when she was first diagnosed. Uh, I'm trying to remember back to that interview. Um, wh which of your diagnoses came next? The Sojourn syndrome came next. Uh, that I had had um, really very odd flare up of sorts where all my muscles, uh, like my muscles holding my head up hurt. I couldn't clench my fists very well like my like it felt like i had swam 70 laps in a pool and i could barely like walk <laughs> it was really weird well the rheumatologist she took some more blood as soon as i came back and was like i think what you had was um was a was like the initial onset of sojourn syndrome and i had thrown the antibodies during that time that was a totally incidental finding mm. um which i mean because i had dry eyes and dry mouth you know i didn't but I also read that those were side effects of all the medications I was taking for my rheumatoid. So I didn't think much about it. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and dry eyes and dry mouth. That, that's like the classic uh, yeah, the, sign of, of Sjogren's syndrome. Yeah. 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 Um, which can come a lot. It comes with muscle pain a lot too, um, which it's really hard to describe. This is where language is, is an issue. Describe muscle pain versus joint pain mm. to a doctor. Yeah. Especially. It occurs all in similar areas um, because that that was a that was a big heart. And they were like, well, if you are experiencing pain, you should have told us. And I was like, well, I thought I was saying that I was having those pains. But I think they assume when we're talking about it, that we're talking about our joints and not our muscles. Because it, so I, it's that's another thing where I really felt like learning to, like you say, research the conditions as we've gotten more information available how to describe to a doctor to trigger the words or the testing that we we kind of need you know yeah like um, as a kid i had no idea how to delineate types of pain you know yeah. I, now that i've experienced more as you know as an adult it's a lot yeah. easier for me to say yeah this is a muscle pain or this is a joint pain yeah. when i'm a kid it's just like why does this hurt i don't know what it is you know <laughs> You're like, arm hurts and you go okay well we now know your arm hurting could mean your elbow could mean your wrist it could mean your forearm it could mean the top of your arm it could mean your bicep area it could mean your shoulder mm. you know and then there's your shoulder does it feel like is it in the joint or is it the muscle surrounding it, it it's all it's all really difficult and then then throw in like referred pain when you have referred pain where your joints hurt so you're compensating mm. and then now you have referred pain to another part of your body because you've been compensating for the other pain. And then you're like, do I count that as the original part of the problem or is it a problem all on its own? Right. Um, which is where those multi-systemic diseases. You just, you're like, where do you, where do you, where do you stop and where do you start? You know? Yeah, totally. I mean, you're getting like a mess of information from your body. And, yes. And yeah, and I've experienced that too, where doctors are like, well, why didn't you say it this way? And it's like, I didn't know to, you know, yeah. I, I can't, yeah. I don't know how to tell. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's why I'm here. I want you to tell me what's going on because I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. So how old were you when you were diagnosed with Sjogren's? Um, Sjogren's was probably 22, 23. Okay. So just a few years after being diagnosed yeah. with RA. Yeah. Did you need to add in more medication at that point? Um, we put in a medication and I don't take it anymore, but it was one to help stimulate saliva flow because the, the biggest problem I was having was like your throat will get so dry um, when you try to eat or drink, uh, particularly eat things. And I still have this problem, but I've learned my way around it now as an adult. But uh, you'll choke on your food if your throat's so dry. Um like you either have to have always have something to drink or it has to be like soupy or saucy to kind of help the food go down because I was choking on, you know, um, 
meat in particular, like chicken and uh, bread. And I still, I still struggle with it. It's not a dysphagia. It's like, I don't have a swelling problem. It's just that my throat can be so dry. There's just not enough there to like slide the food down, you know? After that came the interstitial cystitis. And um, then after that came the idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Oh. And then after the gastroparesis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So intracranial yeah. hypertension. And r remind us what that is. Um, it is where your body, well, um, idiopathic intracranial hy hypertension comes from where your body thinks you have a brain tumor. Um, it used to be called pseudo pseudo tumor cerebri or cerebri. I don't necessarily know how to pronounce that one, but either way, um, it's where your brain thinks you have a brain tumor. So it keeps making brain uh, spinal fluid and will will create a lot of pressure buildup inside your brain. Um, and mine manifested in new onset headaches uh, behind my eye pain. Like it felt like I was being stabbed behind my eye. Um, and, uh, extreme amount of fatigue. Well, cause your body's like, you have a brain tumor when you really don't. So you get a lot of the same symptoms that people with brain tumors have. So migraines and headaches and, um, a lot of other like uh, balance issues and stuff like that. Uh, it also comes with, uh, this condition called papilledema, which is where the optic nerve itself becomes compressed from the pressure. So I was losing some vision in my left eye, uh, which thankfully I've we've gotten under control and have been able to reverse the damage. But some people can lose their visions completely with idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And um, they have to have stents placed to help open up the vessels that drain the spinal fluid and to kind of help remove the pressure off of the brain because it can be quite an emergent issue if it gets too high. How did you get your uh, pressure level down? They started controlling my migraines. And this is, this is kind of weird. Thanks to my gastroparesis, I lost a little extra weight that was just enough to get the vessels or something to relax a little bit to allow the, the pressure to drop on its own. Um, and it just kind of sorted, resol resolved itself. And it may have just been an intermittent condition. Mm. Um, we're keeping it under, you know, under close eye to make sure if it doesn't flare back up. But I also had a spinal tap where they drained the pressure itself off of the off of the spine. So ouch, that was very very helpful. But yes, it was not comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those done once, and it was I had a very bad time. <laughs> yeah, yeah anytime everybody's like, oh, I need one, I'm like, go get some. Like, let them give you all the medications to put you to sleep because you don't need to feel that. <laughs> oh, that's an option. They didn't even give me that option. Yeah, they gave it to me as an option. Thankfully, I can. I'm so sorry they did not give it to you. <laughs> yeah, and the spinal tap was not fun, but for me, the the hard part was the I had a leak afterwards, where yes. I had spinal fluid leaking, and that headache resulting from that was insane. Um, yes, and I had to go back in and have have a blood patch where they kind of inject some of your own blood into the area to convince your spinal cord to clot basically and stop leaking spinal fluid yeah and that can be that can be a complication of a spinal tap and i went from a high pressure headache to a low pressure headache because they mm. had you know they were like, we'll just drain extra fluid since you're here and the body going from one extreme to the other you're like this is wild oh. but that that you got um is very similar to the higher pressure headache in my in my experience um only the thing is you can't lay down to alleviate a high pressure headache uh, like you can with a low pressure headache. Um, but I also had to learn to manage because you don't, you're not supposed to drink a lot of caffeine when you have that condition, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. They want you to avoid caffeine and uh, cause that can raise your spinal fluid pressure. Um, and I was at that time, cause I was very tired all the time. I was like, I was drinking a monster every day when I went to work just to make it through which was probably a, another contributing factor to it because after afterwards I stopped drinking those and um, that helped a little bit too. So I, I, although I do love my coffee, I am very careful with it. <laughs> it's not an everyday ordeal. Um, but you know, every once in a while you're like, I just got to have something to make myself happy, you know? 
Yeah, it's t- it's tough to adjust your diet for health reasons, it's- and I'm at the point now where I don't really have a choice because, yeah, like now that you know, we really think that I might have mast cell activation syndrome because the the protocol has been working so well, and my functionality yeah. is just shot up. So now it's yeah. like when I cheat on my diet. It's like all of a sudden my legs don't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah. it keeps me it keeps me honest on the diet, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, our bodies love to humble us. <laughs> uh, that's what I would say. They that my body will humble me real well whenever you're like, I'm just gonna do this one thing that I don't normally do, you know. And then like mine is eating red meat uh, with my gastroparesis. As I just love some steak, man. I just and I'm 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 anemic anyway, so of course you crave red meat when you're anemic, right? So I'll eat a steak, and then the next day I'm like, oh my god, why did I do that? <laughs> but you know, that's life, isn't it? Like it's it feels like a constant trade off, especially when you're ill. It's a constant trade off. What can I do today to not make tomorrow? And if I do something today, what is tomorrow going to be like? You know, so fun stuff right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you know i've found that there is a certain joy to be had in the discipline of listening to your body and you know when when i was younger it's like i want everything that i want and i want it all the time (laughs) and and the more you go after that i feel like the the less satisfied you are with everything and now that my diet is super limited my activity is monitored but i'm feeling good Um, and I, I haven't felt good in so long. It's just like, it's such, it's just twisting my brain around still that, that this is working and holding. Um, and I, I, I take a lot of joy from that, you know? So yeah, I, I, for me, like keeping that discipline alive, I'm really having to reframe how I think about a lot of things Yes, and food used to be my comfort. You know, yes. it's like, I really don't feel good. I'm going to order some carnitas nachos and yep. that's going to help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it would, it would, it would help. But I, yeah. I can't do that anymore because there's a lot of histamine in that. So I did yeah. it recently. I was like, I'm, I, I got to have my nachos. It's been months and yeah. it was so delicious and yeah. like absolute indulgence. But within a couple of hours, I felt so awful and like my flooded with full body pain. I start twitching. Yeah. My legs stop working. And, and it oh. puts me right back into that place that I lived for six years during my flare up. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that I'm even talking about my flare up in the past tense right now is still mind blowing to me. Like, I'm really just kind of yeah. coming to terms with the fact that this is happening. Um, yeah. But it's just not worth it. You know, like I, I'll find yeah. other things that I can indulge in that will not caused me to be sick um and yep. and your taste buds also change after a while like I, i'm not having yes. sugar also um so there's a lot that i'm not eating my diet is the cleanest it's ever been right now and it's really helping um that's but great. just specifically for the because it's low histamine you know like that's why that's the the missing piece that we never knew about yeah. how do i eat <laughs> and not get yeah. sick it was that histamine piece um and i'm already finding new things that are comfort food inside of that you know so it's and I'm also, I'm not eating as a vice anymore, if that makes yes. sense. I'm eating very yeah. pragmatically and practically. And that yeah. still makes me sad sometimes, but it's working. Yes. So I keep doing it and it's, it's yeah. worth it for sure. Yeah. I do the same thing with my gastroparesis um, where, you know, I, I think back to the days where mine is uh, portions. Like I used to think about how much I used to eat in a sitting and I barely eat that in a day now Mm. and i cannot believe i ate three meals like this you know i can't because my stomach empties so slowly and it's just uh i my mind has been finding my new safe foods and then when you find a new safe food or like with you with your histamine mine is what can my stomach tolerate in terms of digestibility yeah um and where if your stomach's not working as hard you're not as tired and like you know you're not as bloated you're not as um you get a lot of pain with gastroparesis, which is one thing that I noticed initially, they never mentioned that you could get pain with gastroparesis. I'm like, well, why does my stomach hurt physically? Um, and it wasn't just from the bloating, but it like gastroparesis can be very painful. And uh, it's one thing that they don't talk about often. So that's why I was like, if it's paralyzed, why does it hurt? 
But if it's nerve issues and dysmotility issues, then absolutely can hurt. Um, but yeah, like finding a new sense of what is comfort in terms of chronic illness in, in general. Um, things that you didn't realize before were, were bothering you. You know, you're like, I'm doing what the doctor's telling me to do. You know, especially if it's doctor directed and you're still feeling like crap. And then you're like, well, you're, you just want to say, screw it all. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And then that ends up putting you in a worse position. Um, that That's the balance that's really, really difficult with chronic illness in general, um, depending on what condition you have and finding that balance and finding that balance within each person with that same condition. Because with our community, we're able to, to spread awareness. Um, but it's also finding out how diverse these illnesses actually are. Uh, like there's some people with, with the higher histamine that uh, foods that I know that they're like, well, I can eat this and be fine with it. And another person will send them in an anaphylaxis. And you're mm -hmm. like, that is just wild, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm experiencing that too. Like my, I just saw my allergist a couple of days ago. And after, the first time I've seen him since his protocol has been working so well. And he's yeah. like, wow, okay, you really might have this disease. Like, we're, I mean, this, we might have the answer that I've been searching for. And no one else ever thought to look for it because my presentation is not typical at all. You know, like, I don't yep. have normal allergy symptoms like, you know, itchy, runny eyes, um, you know, like yeah. sneezing. I'm yep. having, like, tingling, burning sensations and, like, neurological problems. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so wild how all that stuff affects us all so yeah vastly and, and, and although then there you like i've come across people who we have almost this same presentation and it to me it's like so you have people were on the same spectrum of illness we're either exactly the same or we're nothing alike but we have the same illness and that to me is why I feel like these doctors need to be in our communities because they mm. need to hear our personal experiences with it. And they need to hear, well, maybe this doctor who's the head of the field is saying, well, that's actually totally normal for, for so many people have such different presentations of these illnesses. But it doesn't mean that patient A is lying and patient B, just because they fit what your box you think is that illness doesn't mean that they're the, the classical presentation, you know, I, uh, I struggle, I struggled with that, like trying to, trying to just come to terms with the fact that we're all different, but we're all slightly alike. And, um, there's a lot of overlap with certain diseases that are totally different too, uh, like POTS and inappropriate sinus tachycardia, where they're both very similar in presentation, but there's a few key differences and a lot of doctors will slap a title on one person when really the other title is more appropriate. And when you're talking about diagnosing, sometimes it's splitting hairs trying to diagnose the two conditions, you know? This is so true. And I love, I love that you're bringing this up. This is a really, another really important topic. I, this idea of like comparing yourself to someone else with your <laughs> diagnosis. Um, this is yeah. why I, I really try to avoid compare comparisons on the podcast, you know, comparing one person yeah. to another, you know, we all share our stories and our stories are all different, but like comparing severity of disease makes no sense. Um, yes. ev everyone's major pain is valid. Uh, but, yes. but what you're saying about, you know, comparing one person to another with like, like for me personally, for years, I thought that I might have MS because that's the first thing that doctors always went to based off my symptoms. And yeah. I, you know, I did a great interview um, with Lauren, who I dated in college, who was diagnosed with MS when we were dating. Um, oh, wow. And we used to, you know, years after, um, years after we had broken up and she had moved away, we were kind of comparing notes about uh, my illness had flared up really badly. And she's like, yeah, this really sounds like what a lot of things that I'm experiencing. So, we, yeah. and my doctors always, that's the first thing they'd go to. But then I'd go get the MRI and there would be no MS. But if you were yeah. to stand me up next to two people, one of whom who had MS and one of them who had mast cell activation syndrome, which we now think I might have, um, because yeah. th and that protocol is working, um, yeah. you would think that I was in the wrong camp just by look looking right. at my symptoms. And this is right. why diagnosing some people is so hard. And it's it just cool. takes a lot of trial and error sometimes. You know, for yeah. me, it was like a matter of, 
literally just trying the protocol to find out if it worked yeah. and be like, oh my yeah. God, this is working. This is crazy. <laughs> but there yeah. was no, there was no diagnostic testing that ever, you know, would have led us to this conclusion yet. Right. My, my doctor just said, you know, maybe someday we'll have better testing, but right now the testing is not very accurate. And that's why he likes to just try the protocol with people. And that worked for me. And that feels like a miracle still. But it was yeah. like after years and years of trying everything, having the same tests done over and over and, you know, being sent to the wrong specialists and doctors thinking that I had one thing or another, but it always not panning out. And it was yeah. absolutely maddening. But, but yeah, really goes, it really illustrates what you're talking about of like, you can't just, sometimes you can't just look at what's on the surface and have a real understanding. You have to dig a little bit deeper. You have to try different things. You have to have a doctor who's willing to work with you. Absolutely. And this might, and people kind of, I know you all understand because you, you sound like you've been in the medical system as long as I have. Back when I was first getting diagnosed with my rheumatoid arthritis back in the early 2000s, um, I felt like doctors were a lot more receptive to hearing your personal experience hmm. and being like, you know what, I need to think this over or I need to do a little more research on people in your age group or be more open to saying maybe I don't know the answer. Whereas now there I feel like you come in and you're like, I'm experiencing XYZ and they're just like, ah, it's anxiety. Like I feel like now we're brushed off far more often than than and this maybe maybe was a distorted view from then to now, but I've talked with a couple other people and they're like, yeah, years ago I had much more luck with doctors than I do now. And I don't know if it's that they think that us having access to information, we're overdiagnosing ourselves, like with the self-diagnosis or I don't know. It just feels like a different atmosphere. And even it's, I mean, obviously it's very different post COVID, but even pre COVID, it was very much more like you hear more instances of gaslighting, more instances of people getting brushed off with serious illnesses. And then instead of doing a basic workup, they're just like, I oh, know, you know, come back in three months. I don't want to deal with you basically. Mm. And it's just wild to me that we're in this position now, you know? Yeah. It's very disturbing. And I, if, if I've learned anything about navigating the medical system, it's that you need patience. You need so much patience. Yes. And that feeling of like, Oh, I'm sick something's wrong we need to figure it out and stop it before it gets worse versus yeah. the medical system just moving very very slowly and if you yeah. aren't immediately diagnosable that's yeah. going to like really draw things out learning yeah. how to quiet that panic was really yes. hard for me you know and especially yeah. because if you show any of it to the doctor then they mark you down as having an anxiety disorder and they just cut off care so yeah that's been a real, that's been a real journey, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really taught me a lot of patience. It has, it has. My mom was experiencing some GI issues recently and um, she went and they ran her first round of testing and it didn't really come back with anything. And she's like, but I'm still experiencing these really bad symptoms. And I'm like, mom, you're just going to have to be ultra patient because I said, they're going to want to give up now. And I told her, I said, you're going to have to keep coming after them. You're going to have to keep saying, hey, these are still persistent symptoms. This is still bothering me. You're going to have to give them a couple months, maybe, to even give you uh, an answer. And it's it's taken about seven or eight months, and then she'd gotten uh, a non-answer answer. And they said, well, we're just going to try this med, and the med worked for her. And she was like, well, why couldn't we do that from the beginning? And, and I was just trying to explain to her that they're, they just don't function like that anymore because she's used to, you know, medicine of old where she walked in she she had a concern and a doctor would listen to her and say oh well let's try this and they try it and now it does or doesn't work and old school medicine how they practice was kind of like well we're just going to do the rule out process but it was i felt like it was much more patient active rather than just sending you for testing and then when nothing really comes back on testing um now doctors are just go well you're faking it mm. because they think Oh, well, you have access to the internet. You read up on this and you're manifesting your symptoms, which I have been told before 
I was physically manifesting my own symptoms. And I'm like, how? <laughs> how would I, how does one think themselves into that position? Yeah. And it feels impossible to me. Oh, yeah. No, that's happened to me for sure as well. People uh, being accused of that as well. So, okay. We've talked about four autoimmune conditions plus the intracranial hypertension. So, five, five diagnoses overall. So, you're yeah. now living with all of these things at the same time. It sounds like you've um, learned a bunch of ways to manage all of this. It sounds like you're kind of on top of it. Uh, obviously, yes. it's a challenge, of course. Yeah. Uh, but talk me through... Talk me through your regiment now. You know, how do you manage all of these things? Well, um, my rheumatoid, thankfully, the medication that they put me on for that has seemed to calm a lot of my other stuff. So I take Rituxan for my rheumatoid arthritis, uh, which is a infusion you do every six months. And once we got my rheumatoid under control, the Sotrans seemed to back off a little bit and the Raynaud's seemed to back off a little bit. Um, and the interstitial cystitis, I manage... Uh, with my urogynecologist, I go every other week and we do some bladder treatments and medications. The idiopathic intracranial hypertension, thankfully with the, the spinal tap and then the medications that they have me on has brought my pressure down. Um, gastroparesis, I do IV fluids and IV nausea medication at home, um, which has been really, that has been the key to like feeling so much better, even with like, like my heart condition. Um, cause staying hydrated was very important for it. Um, but not being able to drink a lot was a problem. Mm. Uh, so, uh, it has been a very trying past like three or four years. So that's really where everything seemed to flare up the most. Uh, was when, when I got diagnosed with my gastroparesis, it tended to kind of like knock off everything that was semi controlled before. Uh, but now I've gotten back into this uh, little regimen of the IV fluids and the nausea medications and making sure when I am drinking something that it has electrolytes in it that can help bring up my potassium and my magnesium, which I was deficient in because of my diet. So um, finding foods that my stomach can handle that I can eat that are higher in protein and better in like the nutrients that also don't make it sour when i'm trying to eat so uh yeah it's a lot of medications it's a lot of trial and error still i'm still trial and erring uh you know certain treatments to see if they work or not uh but yeah i finally finally i'm in a good spot with my medications and iv fluids at home so yeah and with raynaud's that's six six diagnoses at least yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i i also yeah trying to think about what else i you know i get vertigo thanks to the the intracranial hypertension because it just really messes with your balance and stuff too um it was like the enough slices sound you know from <laughs> tiktok where there was a guy that talked about having enough slices in the pizza or whatever i got to like my fourth diagnosis and i was over it i was like i don't want to do this anymore mm -hmm. you know like i don't it's not like i wanted to die or anything it was just more like I just wanted to stop going to doctors because I had a lot of anxiety about going to there because it, so, it felt like every time I went, there's a major complication. And I was just sick of hearing bad news. Um, and to this day, I still have some, you know, pre-appointment anxiety, not just from medical gaslighting, but when you go to a, a clinic and they're like, oh, yeah, you have this major condition and now you have to change your lifestyle again after you had just gotten what you felt like gotten to a point where you were pretty comfortable living with the way that you were living. Um, and I know you, you can relate to that. You're just like, I think I'm okay. And then something else comes along, uh, knocks you over. Um, that was not fun. Yeah. For a while. Yeah. But you made it through that. I mean, yeah. so if you could, if you go back in time and address yourself or address someone else going through something similar, who maybe is hitting that point of, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Having made it through that probably several times at this point. Yeah. And now having a sense of how to do that because you've done it. How yeah. would you tell yourself in the past or someone else going through something similar? How would you tell them how to get through that? I, I actually do tell some people this when I'm, you know, when they message me on stuff and I just tell them ultimately it will be okay. I, and, and that's been my experience and maybe that's not everybody's experience, but ultimately it will be okay. You will learn. It's going to suck for a while, 
and it may be really difficult, but you'll learn and you'll make it through and eventually you'll be okay. It'll suck for a while, but you'll be okay. That's kind of like, just keep pressing. And I, I came across a quote and I can't remember who exactly said it, but they're like, they're like, I can't think about my life in five years from now. Um, I can't even think about my life in one day from now because you really truly never know but it's okay to break your day down into what do i want to do in the next 30 minutes what i want to do in the next hour you know that that simple phrase put one foot in front of the other to just keep your path forward one foot in front of the other and that's all you need to focus on it's just getting one foot in front of the other yeah metaphor and physically speaking sometimes you know (laughs) yeah i mean time is going to pass whether you want it to or not and you are a passenger in the movement of time yep and sometimes you feel like you you can't make it through something but then you'll you'll look back and it's over and you don't even know how you got there yep but times are going to move you forward you know whether you want it to or not yep they'll ask you they're like how did you get through that and you're like i have no clue (laughs) you know and honestly you're just like i went to the appointments i came home i slept a lot I slept a lot. Honestly, that was probably the the, <laughs> the coping mechanism that I have because I've developed it with my rheumatoid. When I don't feel good, I just go to bed. And um, I slept a lot. And I think that helped with the passage of time. It helped me get through my day. And, and you know, eventually I'm okay. You know, I, I made it through and I, I found a team of doctors. And if I didn't like the answer from one doctor, I I kept searching and I know that's not always an option for people because of where they live. Um, but I felt very fortunate to be where I live that I was able to do that. I kept just, I was not happy with that answer. I'm going to go to a different doctor. Um, and that took a lot of time, but it was good time. It was yeah. good time spent to that's, get to people. That's my strategy. To- yeah. That's also yeah. my strategy for sure. And I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah. And I know, and some people, and I feel really bad because they'll message me like on TikTok or Instagram and they'll ask me, they're like, well, how did you get this diagnosis? And and I kind of do and don't like those, com- those kind of, com- of questions because it, how did I get it? Well, a lot of mine happened by accident. I never actually like went out and sought for a diagnosis. They kind of were like, hey, you have this thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so... I felt unhelpful in that, but in the same breath, I'm like, with the era of the internet, I don't doubt these people are finding their own conditions before their doctors do. And the only thing I recommend to them is like, just keep looking, you know, even if you think that it's not going to lead somewhere, maybe try it, you know, um, like you seeing an allergist versus, you know, a neuro, you know, like a neurologist or something like that. So it's just... <sighs> It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, TLDR, it's hard. Um, yeah. Vicki, you've done an amazing job today. This is so fun talking to you. I had a feeling it would be having seen some of your TikTok <laughs> content, and I was not disappointed at all. Um, but before Thank we you. wrap up today, please tell our listeners where they can go to find you online or anything else you'd like to share. Um, well, my TikTok, which is where I'm the most active, is chronically.vicky, V-I-C-K-Y same handle on my instagram um and if you know come hit me up there uh if you want to be mutuals with me i only allow dms between me and my mutuals just because you know the internet Mm -hmm. (laughs) so if anybody wants to to, you know message me and talk about their symptoms or they just want an ear to listen to because there's a lot of people that that i chat with on on a daily basis that we're just commiserating and i feel like that is a very important part of community <laughs> is just have a place to commiserate sometimes um because you just got to scream into the void uh, on occasion so uh but yeah chronically dot vicky uh, on tiktok and instagram awesome yeah and i totally agree that's why i love doing this podcast is like being able to yeah. talk to people like you and you know talk about the issues that we see with the journey that we've had where maybe yeah. things were harder than we would have wanted them to be for ourselves or for the next generation of people. So, um, yeah. yeah, I, I've loved chatting with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with us. I will tag you on Instagram and TikTok for those okay. of us who follow the uh, major pain podcast on both of those platforms. Um, thank awesome. you so much for 
just being a joy to talk to you. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you inviting me and I'm, I'm happy to, I'm always happy to chit chat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpain podcast.